Good evening, everybody, and welcome to School Psych Podcast. Uh, I'm Rachel. Before we get started with our really awesome topic, and we're so thrilled at all the, um, the buzz that we've got about this topic of functional behavior assessment, I think it's a really important thing that school psychs need to be involved with and, and know how to do. Um, I wanted to do a couple little housekeeping things first before we got rolling. Um, one, we've transitioned to YouTube Live, so it's a little bit different from using um, Google Hangouts that we previously used to broadcast. It looks of a very similar nature. I'm thinking that those of you that are watching tonight, um, there should be a chat box on the side. So that's new, or maybe that was there last night, our last episode when we were kind of transitioning. And last episode, we didn't really realize that that had been added, <laughs> and so we missed a lot of your comments. So we're aware of it now. We're going to try and check that. And so Rebecca's going to talk a little bit more about how to participate and what she's looking for, but I'm going to try and keep my eye on that as well. Um, so bear with us. If something goes wrong, you know, get at us with the, the tweeting and, and let us know if we're having any type of technical issues tonight. Um, I also wanted to mention that NASP is doing uh, Twitter chats. If some of you had been following them on Twitter or on Facebook, um, they've had two so far and they use hashtag NASP advocates and I just wanted to throw that out there so that people are aware I think it happens on Wednesdays every other Wednesday or so they've been doing it um, and we've been participating or we tried to participate a little bit last time we kind of forgot um, <laughs> but we're hoping that people will be involved in that um, and then I also wanted to do a little congratulations to Rebecca. Um, she has posted on her site and we shared it also on the podcast page. Um, she's got a, a co-authorship with um, on a book that is for sale on Amazon and it's called 70 Play Activities for Better Thinking, Self-Regulation, Learning and Behavior. And we're all really excited for her. And um, so congrats on that, Rebecca. And we're looking to talk more about that in another podcast probably in the spring. So look forward to that. Um, also, I wanted to say that tonight we've got so much information to cover and our guests are very knowledgeable and very excited and enthusiastic about this topic. We're thinking that it's probably going to be a two-part series because there's just so much to cover. So um, look forward to that in the spring too. If, don't be worried if we don't cover everything. We're going to hopefully come back to it if need be. But anyways, as I said, I'm Rachel. Um, I'm a school psychologist and right now I'm working in the state of Maryland. I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca. Rebecca? Hi everybody, I'm Rebecca. I am a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. So I will be looking for your questions, comments, and participation on Facebook, on the School Psyched, Your School Psychologist page, and also on the School Psyched podcast page. You can literally comment anywhere. I get notifications. I'm looking for those. I will find you eventually. Um, and you can even send me a message. If you want it to be a private uh, communication, send it through messages, which is a tab on either page or on Twitter using the hashtag PsychedPodcast. So I'll be looking in those three places for you guys tonight. I know um, we had a lot of conversation in the um, polls, so we're going to talk about that as well. And now I'd like to introduce one of our guests tonight, who is Dr. Kristen Johnson. She received her specialist degree in school psychology at Nichols State University and her doctorate at the University of Southern Mississippi. She has been a practicing school psychologist for over 16 years. She previously taught at Mississippi State University and Eastern Illinois University. She is currently the owner of the Institute for Evidence-Based Reform. She was the lead writer for Miss 
for Mississippi Department of Education's RTI Best Practices Manual. She has presented internationally, nationally, regionally, and statewide. Her areas of research and service are in response to intervention, consultation with schools and families, and academic behavioral interventions. Uh, she has published in several scholarly journals, and her new book is Academic and Behavioral Interventions, Evidence-Based Interventions for All Students. She, is also, she also has a software for implementing behavior, behavior interventions called My Behavior Assistant. Um, check out her, the links to her company, evidencebasedreform.com, and her intervention software at www.mybehavioracistant.com. And I put all that information in the comments of School Psych Podcast page. And hopefully we'll link it also to the YouTube broadcast so that you can find it there. And now Anna is going to introduce our second guest. Anna? Hey guys, I'm Anna, School Psych in New York. I am so excited to nerd out tonight um, with our two wonderful guests. Um, our second guest is Ryan Farmer, an associate professor with the School Psychology Program at Western Kentucky University. He completed the, his doctorate in school psych at the University of Memphis. Dr. Farmer completed his clinical internship and postdoctoral research fellowship at the Monroe Meyer Institute at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Um, his interests include behavioral interventions and behavioral assessment. His research to date has been on psychometric properties of intelligence tests and functional behavioral assessment practices. Um, he's a BCBA, a member of NASP, and um, Applied Behavior Analysis International, and um, the APA. So uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. So we like to try and um, do a poll on our Facebook page. Um, shout out to our School Psych Podcast Facebook page, Like Us People. Um, so, we did a <laughs> so we did a poll, two polls, because there was so much action. I mean, um, FBAs are something that we're trained in as school psychs, and it's, it's a pretty darn big part of our job. So we had 100 people who said that the school psych was the main person who did the FBAs in their building, which was huge. Um, we had a nice split um, as far as uh, people's comments and if they felt prepared. Some people felt like they needed on-the-job training. Um, 57 people felt like they needed some on-the-job training. 56 people felt like they were prepared in grad school, while 54 people felt like they weren't as prepared in grad school. So kind of a spread of people feeling comfortable um, with the FBAs and BIPs right off the bat and not, um, which is interesting. And we also want to know, like, who was involved in your building? Like, is it the school site's responsibility on their own, or is it a team effort? And um, the great thing is 27 people said that it's a team effort. Um, the team members who create the FBA, conduct the FBA and the BEP share the responsibilities. Um, but 24 people said the school site was the one who really did the, the main work. So it's kind of a, we're involved in the team and or leading the team and or doing it on our own. It's like a nice mix. So, um, uh Ryan um, and um, Kristen, uh, please, uh, thank you for coming, and uh, go ahead. Take it away. <laughs> Hi, thank you guys for the, the wonderful welcome, and it's, it's actually really great to be able to talk with you guys tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. We absolutely agree with you. FBA is one of those things that is it's becoming a larger and larger part of our, our jobs as school psychologists. It's in, especially now that it's, it's becoming so much more well, well, let's go with mandated. <laughs> 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 um, 
but yeah, lack Chris, of a best term. Right, exactly. Uh, Kristen and I would both be doing these regardless, just because it's something we enjoy doing, and it's it's honestly, I think it, Kristen said it earlier. Uh, it's detective work, and that just makes it so much more fun at times. It absolutely does. It's um, of all the activities that we do in school psychology, FBAs, functional analysis, behavior plans, all of that work is probably my favorite aspect of school psychology. I could not be more excited about talking about FBAs and doing that kind of stuff. You're probably going to see Ryan and I nerd out just a little bit um, on talking about uh, functional behavior assessments. But we probably should get started with some of the basics of what we should talk about prior to going into all of the mandates of what an FBA requires. Absolutely. And so Kristen and I had a little bit of a chat and we put some things together uh, just to help us share some of this information. So I'm going to put that up now. You guys able to see that okay? We're good? Yep. Okay, great. So, you know, we, we talk about FBAs and really we're jumping the gun a little bit because FBAs is the end game because what we're really asking is what is the purpose of a behavior? Why are we doing, why is the kid doing this? Why aren't they doing something else? And what we're skipping is why, why, what are we looking at? How are we measuring it? And why do we even need to measure it? And so, you know, I have, I'm not going to read to you guys the slides that would, that would just make this incredibly boring. But, um, The whole point is to make sure that we're doing the best we can, that we're doing the best for the student that we can. And FBA is one of those processes that allows us to make sure that we're providing the absolute best intervention. And it leads to those function-based interventions that we know are more effective. And so to even get there, though, we have to really start asking ourselves, what are we looking at? And a lot of times I see a lot of FBAs that are just really broad, just so broad. They're targeting four or five different behaviors at one time. And a lot of times the behaviors are not at all connected. Now, you know, it may be that every one of those behaviors needs to be targeted, but it really benefits the the person doing the FBA, the kid, the teacher, not to overwhelm everybody. And so really picking one behavior at a time, really focusing on it and really digging in can be an amazing way to go about this whole process. And so we talk then about, well, how do we measure it? Because, you know, sometimes we get, my favorite is when I I get these referrals for, oh, he's just aggressive. He's a mean kid. And so um, how do you measure that? Am am I being mean right now? Am I being mean towards people who say that right now? We, We don't know because we don't have a good operational definition. And that's really the first thing we have to have before moving on to anything else. We need that before we can measure anything. We need to know what we're looking for. We need to know what it looks like. Kristen, is there anything you would add to that? Well, and one of the things that you want to do, we, we obviously will say, you know, a child looks um, happy or they look angry, but if you can break that down into a way that is observable, not just angry, but maybe clenched fists or clenched teeth or um, face is squinched up or face is red, whatever that looks like so that 
it is operational. It's not just anger because we all know that everybody's anger looks a little bit different. My anger might look different than Anna's anger or Ryan's anger. Um, my happy might look a lot different than other people's happy. And so we want to um, not make the inference that somebody is feeling something, not that they aren't feeling it. It's just that we all have to agree to be able to measure that. I can't I can't agree more with what Kristen's added here. Uh, you know, I would I would take it a step farther. You know, a lot of times as psychologists, we we and I'm not saying we don't care, but we, we care a lot about emotions, what the person is thinking. But when we talk about a good FBA, we can't observe those things. I can't observe that you're feeling mad or happy or upset. I can't observe that you are thinking about the other student when you do this behavior. Um, so a lot of times we, we kind of have to narrow it down to just the, sub, the objective measurable behavior in that moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's hard for a lot of us because that's not how we were trained. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a good operational definition is, is necessary and it should take that in consideration. It should be observable. In other words, we're, rule, we're not looking for emotions. We're not looking for intensity because intensity is really hard to measure too we're not looking for thoughts we're not looking for you know perception we're looking only for those things that you can see with the naked eye what does it look like and as long as you keep it observable and then simple so that you know staff can do it well you should be on a good path and i add that you know you should refine it as necessary and basically what that means is if the behavior changes either because of your interventions or something else going on in the world, you need to be changing your definition too. Well, and here's another point, um, Ryan, if I can jump in, in that, that um, refining is that when I do an, op uh, an operational definition is that I will often ask a teacher or somebody that's not in the classroom to go and observe my operational definition because it has to pass what we call the stranger test. If I can see it and I can give you the definition and you say, you go see it. If you don't see the exact same thing or you want to add things to that definition or you want to take things away, that's where you refine that definition that works the best when you're starting to operationally define that behavior. So you want to do the stranger test, but you also want to refine it. And it can be refining after you've talked to a colleague or refining because you're learning more about the behavior as the behavior kind of unfolds over time. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. I would, and I'm going to piggyback on what Kristen said a little bit. I feel like that's going to happen a lot tonight. I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> another thing I would add is a lot of times teachers and I'm not knocking teachers here, but sometimes we get referrals that include behaviors that they're really not interfering all that much. Uh, my favorite example of this was this kid who was referred because he was whispering to himself during nap time and the teacher just thought he should be napping. And I, I went in and observed and I, I did the whole shebang because that's what, you know, I was asked to do. And at the end I said, I don't believe we need an intervention. You have a wonderful day. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I simply mean we should be looking for those behaviors that are problematic for the kid and, and socially meaningful. We shouldn't be leaving, you know, going in and looking for something that doesn't have meaning. If we're focusing all of our attention 
on a behavior that it doesn't really matter if it changes in the long run. We're wasting a lot of resources. We're wasting the teacher's time, the child's time, and our time. Yeah. I have a thought, if I could jump into that. Um, when you're talking about, you know, doing the whole shebang and all the resources that it takes, and, you know, when I do an FBA, it, I mean, all of us, it can be very extensive. It can be, be very time-consuming. Absolutely. Um, so I did, and I don't know if this is a good point to jump in with this, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, I guess, is it worth it sometimes? Sometimes I feel like I can go into a classroom and see a behavior and I'm like, okay, well, I know, I know right there just from seeing this for five minutes that this is a sensory behavior or this is an escape behavior. Um, but then I'm going back to my office and writing this long report and summarizing all this data and lo and behold, at the end of the day when I'm finished, um, I come to the same conclusion that I saw some, some of these behaviors. I mean, not all, some are tricky. Um, is it worth it sometimes? Well, and I saw this wonderful, wonderful um, keynote speaker at ABAI, it's the Applied Behavior Analysis International, a couple years ago where her actual ending point, her takeaway from the entire presentation was sometimes an FBA just isn't necessary. And she wasn't knocking the process. She wasn't knocking the effect of it. She was simply saying, and I think Christy even brought this up earlier in our chat, there are just tons of things you can try to begin with that might make it unnecessary. Mm -hmm. okay. I, think if it's, I think if it's a playing to the naked eye or something that you can easily remediate because uh, a, t a child is attention maintained mm -hmm. or um, the child clearly is having difficulty with such and such and so they're escaping and you can come up with um, different kinds of interventions that and not complex interventions. We're talking about maybe um, a variable ratio, and I just got real technical with that comment, um, intervention, just giving praise, catching the child being good um, at a higher frequency than maybe another child. Mm -hmm. If that remediates the issue, there really isn't a need for a function, uh, an FBA. And so I would probably go back and start doing something with the teacher just on the side and not doing a report. A report is not always necessary. <clears throat> Maybe notes, but not necessarily report. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times kind of adding to that, you'll go in and you'll have a teacher who will refer multiple kids to you at once. Like these three kids are just all giving me heck every day. And I just can't, I can't do anything about it. And a lot of times you can look at that situation and go, okay, what, what quick skills can I provide with this teacher that she can use now and moving forward? And there are some really, I mean, just, just powerful interventions that you can totally toss out in a five minute span that have amazing effectiveness. Uh, the good behavior game just leaps to mind and perhaps that's something we can talk about later on. Yeah. That, that reminds me of uh, calling out. That was a question that somebody asked me this week on my page. A teacher said, I have these three students that just won't stop calling out. They won't raise their hands. Um, that might be a good case where you, you wouldn't need to sit there and observe each student and, and do an FBA, but you could just come up with um, some really good interventions for calling out. Absolutely. That is a perfect case because mm -hmm. 
some of these high frequency behaviors that we see calling out, um, maybe getting out of their seat or talking to their peers. There are a lot of really good interventions that remediate most of these kids without having to do an FBA. Now, if they're unresponsive to the to the intervention, that is a perfect time to go back and maybe look at doing the FBA. Obviously, the first thing that we always want to do is check for integrity of the intervention being implemented, but we want to circle back to whether the FBA is warranted if they're not responding to some of the interventions that we've tried. Absolutely. Um, and I just, I just wanted to come back around really quick to... Um, end our point on, on definitions and making sure that we're, we're looking at the same thing. I know I'm jumping back a little bit because we got off on a tangent, but um, if your definition is objective, clear, and complete, then you're good to go. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. Okay, so yeah, I think to that point, lots of times when we get the call to come in um, and observe a child or support a child, there's, there, there are lots of behaviors clumped together under one heading. And so in order to make really clear operational definitions, we kind of have to separate those out. Like I think of defiant. He's defiant. He just doesn't listen. He just doesn't follow directions. You know, there's so many things happening there. So how, how do you handle that when there's lots of different behaviors that you want to address? You start with the sort of the most impactful you can absolutely. If if there are a lot of behaviors that that seem to serve the same purpose, I guess is a good way of going about it. Um, then you can kind of group those together. I I love the term um, combined inappropriate behaviors. I've used that a hundred times, but basically it's like aggression that's breaking down into hitting and pushing and pinching and yelling and shoving desks and all that stuff, and it kind of all gets grouped together. And that's okay as long as it's the same purpose. And you don't always know that. So sometimes you start down that road and you're completely sidetracking yourself. But as long as it's really clear that they're kind of, again, going for that same goal, then that's absolutely appropriate. We do um, chunk them or what we call class behaviors together. But a yes. as Ryan said, it has to serve the same purpose or what we call function. So they have to be getting out of it the same thing. And so when you're doing those observations, you're wanting to look at those antecedents and those consequences. I'm setting you up for the next slide. Uh, the most for that child. And so when you're looking at some of those behaviors, you definitely want to see, okay, are they getting attention from this one? Maybe they're getting escape from the next one. And so they don't function in the same class. And that's how you can kind of separate out those behaviors into, okay, we have three behaviors that, that seem to happen all at the same time and we can class them together or temporally the same. But we have this one that isn't necessarily can be chunked into the others. And so we don't want to class them together, but you obviously can class them um, tantrums. We see tantrums all the time. Oh, yeah. and, and so that, you know, there's lots of behaviors that can go under that class mm -hmm. of tantrum, but there's lots of behaviors that are being exhibited under a tantrum, um, yelling, screaming, kicking, fighting, throwing objects. Um, and so, that's a class of behaviors as long as it's getting the same thing out of it. 
Absolutely. And just to kind of give a non-example of that situation, you might have a tantrum going on and all of those behaviors can serve the same purpose, but then the child is also running out of the classroom. That's likely having a different function. Absolutely. Um, just to kind of pick up on where Kristen um, left off there with the antecedent behavior consequence piece, you know, we, we, when you do an FBA, you're kind of breaking it down to what happens before, what happens after. And that's all we care about in this situation. We care about what triggers the behavior and we care about what happens immediately after or what's maintaining the behavior. Are they getting something out of it? Uh, and what are they getting out of it? So when we think about, I think many of us in graduate school have seen kind of the three-term contingency of antecedent behavior consequence. And when you're in a classroom that, or on the playground or in the cafeteria, wherever that is, um, behavior can be quite complex as all of us know. And so that three-term contingency seems to be okay within graduate school. But then once we get out into the real world and we start observing it sometimes gets a little bit more complicated or a little bit more um, difficult to kind of pull that out because um, a consequence can be the antecedent to the next behavior. And so when we really want to think about what the antecedents are, it's what triggers or what sets the occasion. And we really want to think about our environments um, in that way. We can think about the timer going off on the stove. That's an antecedent for what? to take something out of the out of the oven. I mean, there's so many antecedents in our environment and we start thinking about that and we start thinking about, okay, what happened afterwards and then what seems to be maintaining it. It is just a running dialogue, but mm -hmm. a consequence can serve as an antecedent to the next chain in a behavioral sequence. If we think about it that way. It gets really complicated. The example I love to give to my students is if I want to go to the store, the first antecedent are my keys. The behavior is going to be that I pick up my keys. The reward for picking up my keys is that I now have my keys in my hand, which serves as an antecedent for I can now open the door on my car, which serves as the behavior opening the door on my car, which, which results in the consequence I can now get into my car. You see how it's a chain. It never really stops. It just gets more complicated. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to jump in. Um, I, the YouTube chat uh, does seem to be working pretty well. Um, we've been talking a little bit with some people, but somebody had a question. Um, so do you guys find teachers are more receptive and uh, more likely to implement interventions when you prompt them um, to come up with an intervention themselves versus providing suggestions? Do you guys have any thoughts? I have lots. I have lots of thoughts too. Um, <laughs> it's a difficult question and I, I think it very much depends on the teacher. Yeah. Um, I, I think, and I, you know, I, I love to be individualistic there and just, just say that everyone is different and some interventions that a teacher comes up with can be amazing and can take you from beginning to end and you need nothing else. Um, however, I've seen the flip side of that too. And so sometimes it's uh, difficult. Well, and this gets, um, you know, completely into consultation and um, mm -hmm. resistance to change, which I'm actually blogging about right now because this is, seems to be quite the, the hot topic as to why are, and it's not just teachers, it's us. 
as individuals. Why are we more in willing to engage in some change, but more resistance to engage in other change? And how do we actually assess that situation um, more accurately to ask those questions so that we can actually get the change that we need for the child and the teacher to be successful? So there's lots of questions that we need to ask ourselves in that consultation process that we are either more likely or less likely to have a better outcome for the child. So that actually gets into consultation and how well we do it and you know how can we assess that. That's just a world of wonderful different conversations, Absolutely. but yes. I, I do think it's invaluable to involve the teacher in the process because if you start throwing out interventions that just aren't feasible for the classroom, then you're shooting yourself in the foot from the get-go. The literature is very clear that if you can incorporate it within the routine mm -hmm. and that they can actually, um, that it's not as intrusive as others. Uh, and, and this is very logical and kind of common sense, but the literature is actually very, very clear on that. You know, we have tried intrusive interventions versus non-intrusive interventions. Well, clearly teachers are going to like non-intrusive interventions, ones that they can incorporate within their classroom routine. Um, other ones that um, teachers often like more positive-based interventions than negative-based interventions. Uh, the research is clear about that, um, although I have met a couple of teachers that have, you know, maybe wanted to have, um, you know, more negative or punishment-based interventions, particularly by the time that I'm called to come into the classroom. <laughs> I mean, usually everybody's at their wit's end, but there's lots of literature on you know, obviously you want to come up with something that the teacher can do, that they can incorporate, that they are more willing to try. So that coming up with the interventions um, is, is a good idea, or at least leading them down the path in which you want them to go. One thing that I have seen to be effective, uh, and I saw some literature on this, but I couldn't tell you from where right now, is uh, coming up with sort of a menu board of, of interventions for the teacher and then allowing the teachers to select from the, that menu. And so that way you're ensuring that you're getting a function-based intervention, but the teacher's preferences are being very heavily considered in that process. Yeah, that's great. I would love to see an example of that, a menu board. <laughs> yeah. I will see what I can find. Thank you. <laughs> There's actually a, a couple of pages in the front of my book that's function-based. Mm -hmm. oh, so wow. I, could share, I could share that on the um, school psych on your website. That would be awesome. <laughs> Thank <Girl>. you. <laughs> All right. yeah. As a newbie, I really appreciate that. <laughs> I think I have one more year to call myself a newbie, but I certainly still feel like one. <laughs> hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. We have a cutoff for newbies? Yeah, I still maybe newbie. not. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the cutoff is when just your dues go up. <laughs> oh well, that was a long time ago, but I still feel like a newbie. Yeah, <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> All right, I am. I think we do have another comment. Mm -hmm. um, and okay, so uh, what what would be the necessary components on an FBA form if we're creating one from scratch? Did we already talk about that? Sorry, I was distracted. <laughs> No, I don't think so. I think the whole issues of forms are is a interesting one. There, there are some several that you can find out there, and some of them are are pretty different. So, do you have 
a form or a format that, that you like? What do you definitely include? Kristen, would you like to take this first or? Um, what I include in an FBA, obviously I have my own templates or I have my own forms that I use and I'm, um, there's several out there that have either been, um, that have reliability and validity that are added to them. That's a, a whole nother ball of wax as far as conversations. Mm -hmm. But what I do include is teacher information. So there's interviews. There's also data collection that the teacher has done. There's also maybe some um, rating scales as far as what the teacher thinks about social skills or some other skills that, and I'm looking for replacement behaviors in the future for the behavior plan. Mm -hmm. um, I also get um, parent information. So I'll talk to the parent because I'm looking at what's different in different environments. Um, and I should back up. I should, it's not just one teacher, but it's all teachers. And the reason why I do this is that one teacher may be referring and it may be say the math teacher. And of course I'm going to always pick math because it's one of my loves in research areas, but the teacher may be referring math, but the reading teacher doesn't have any problems with the student. So what is it, those two environments that look different? I'm not going to exclude the reading teacher because the reading teacher has valuable information that I absolutely am going to incorporate because it may not just be reading. It may be that there's different students in there. It may be a different time of day. It may be where the child is sitting. I mean, there's so much that I can gather about why isn't this child behaving this way in this classroom versus the other way in the other classroom. So I incorporate as many teachers as I possibly can in that um, parent information. Um, I also do data collection from the teacher, but also my observations. And then, and my observations are um, not just ABC. I rarely do an ABC and it's just because um, I don't necessarily need it uh, for, I'll do a peer um, observation. So I look at a peer and I look at the student to see if there's a high discrepancy. And that is just to show that there is a need for an FBA. And I usually go into what's called a conditional probability. So I check off when I'm observing what antecedents are present, what behaviors are present, and what are the consequences right after that. Um, and then I might do some graphing and then do student um, feedback. So student interview, preference um, from the student, and then I do summary. I think my, I might have lost something, but Ryan sure was going to fill me in. <laughs> I, I mean, that was extremely thorough. Um, I, I kind of want – so I when, when the question was asked, I was thinking – slightly differently. And I, first of all, I want to say I agree 100% with Kristen. My approach is more of a, what do we have here? What's going on? Let's get information from parents, teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also want to know what resources we have available, what skills the kid has going on. Uh, and then I'm going to collect data based on the operational definition that I've come up with from the teacher and the parents and, and the administration. Um, I, I usually base mine around a good research question. Um, the chat is throwing me off right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I base it around a good research question. And then, um, I do, I, I, I want to emphasize that Kristen mentioned graphing. And one of the things that I have noticed in almost every single FBA report I have ever seen, including example um, reports and books is they don't include a visual depiction of the data. There are no graphs in these reports. 
but the entire basis of FBA was based on this idea that you can look at the data visual, visually inspect it and come up with your findings and that's how you're going to evaluate change over time as well. And so to not have that in there is really not a good idea. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Um, I, I think, is there any, I don't believe there's anything we've missed, Kristen. One thing I do want to add is a lot of districts offer these quick one to two, sometimes three or four page forms for FBA, and they are not always very good. What Kristen and I have kind of laid out is not so much a form, but more of a, a way to think about this and a, a, an approach to use. And so there isn't, you know, I, I would love to say that there's this great list of do this, do this, do this, yeah. but it just doesn't exist because every behavior is different. And even the same behavior has to have, might or might have a different function, and it's definitely going to have a different antecedent. And so there's no way to really have a do this, do this kind of checklist approach. And I it's, know, sorry, go ahead, Kristen. It's a process of answering questions. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what um, Ryan talked about, is that he's developing a, a question or a research question to be able to answer. And so we're playing detectives. And so to be able to say that this is exactly what we do, I don't know that I have ever had an FBA that it's the exact same same scenario because it's not because I am answering questions. So I might use a different assessment to be able to get at the question better than somebody else's because their question was completely different. So I absolutely completely concur with Ryan on that kind of format. Do you think that there are some decent forms or form, formats that people use at like sort of tier one <clears throat> that are, you know, because there are so many of them and you think that they're all bad? <laughs> I, mean, I guess that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen all of them. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there, I just find there's so many forms out there and they say, they'll say FBI on top and, and they're probably, you know, they're, I don't think that they, necessarily are but um, I wonder if that's why they, mm -hmm. there's a proliferation of them people are using them as sort of a tier one like a begin just like a start an exploration just an observation well I, I will say that there I'm sorry Chris I mean to cut you off I was just gonna say there are some good forms uh, Greg Handley has a website called Pr practical functional assessment and he has amazing resources amazing interviews and amazing um, tasks that you can complete to go through his functional analysis process, and it's absolutely amazing. I would highly recommend that to anyone considering developing a form. That's a great. But great. it's generally longer than a one to two page. Mm -hmm. um, most of the districts that I have consulted with, we have absolutely thrown away the one to two page because it limits your ability to be a good detective because it assumes that there's only five antecedents or there's only 10 antecedents and there's millions of antecedents. And it's, I'm not a big fan now. And I'm talking about just the one to two pagers that we often see at school district websites. I haven't seen them all. So please don't anybody email me and shoot me on that one. Like you haven't seen mine. I'm sure I haven't, but most of the time it's just, it limits your ability to kind of answer your questions. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> FBA is a, so I like to think about it in this way. Function-based assessment is a lot like cognitive assessment. You wouldn't go in with a seven or eight step process for evaluating someone's cognitive or academic skills. You would have to learn that process through arduous training in graduate school and then apply that process to whatever concern pops up at the school level. FBA is the same way, but we've, we've sort, of, sort of treated it like fill in the blank psychology where. Um, <laughs> that was awesome. Sorry. I, well, uh, I've thought about this one a lot. I'm, I, I, I'll be more honest now. I am not a fan of the form just because they do limit your perspective to what's on the form. It kind of limits problem solving and critical thinking. Well, and you see lots of questions as we talked about prior to the broadcast on School Psych Forum and on mm -hmm. other sites asking, you know, this child scored this on a cognitive. Um, I'm confused or I'm wondering if, and there's huge amounts of comments of, did you assess for this? Did you look at this? Did you mm -hmm. think about this? Did you do? FBAs are exactly the same as any cognitive assessment that you would do because you're playing a detective when you're doing a cognitive assessment. You're wanting to know what's going on with the child, how the child best learns, and if there are any um, weaknesses, what are they, and how can we help or remediate or um, provide accommodations so that child has the best learning opportunity possible. Mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of a good segue into when we're talking about functions of behavior, just because you were talking about, you know, you don't want to be limited in the antecedents and I'm assuming the consequences and whatnot. You don't want to be pigeonholed into that form. But now will you guys talk a little bit about, you know, the functions of behavior? Because sometimes I see lots of psychs come up with, you know, the function of behavior is there's a desire for acceptance or the function of the behavior is power control. And I know that there's some controversy about what are the functions of behavior? <laughs> Talk about that. <laughs> Great question. And um, I think this is actually one of the last slides. So we think about functions in terms of seat. We have, you know, our sensory um, functions. So you might think about scratching an itch that serves a sensory function. It's biologically mediated. Uh, escape or avoidance, so getting out of work. Um, escaping from a math worksheet. So if, if, you know, if Rebecca runs away every time someone asks her to do an FBA, well, then her function, the function of her running away is probably escape, right? Or avoidance of the task. Attention, that's the one we all know and love, right? Every, every, everyone knows the attention one. Um, but then there's also tangible, and tangible is really broad because it can be broken down into a ton of different ones. Uh, but it includes all those things you would, you would think of, like computer time, uh, iPad time, food, uh, and so on and so forth, toys in the classroom, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and you want to think about, I'm just going to kind of piggyback here, but when you think about escape, you want to think about not just escape from what you might perceive as aversive, like a math task, but maybe peers, social mm -hmm. interaction. I mean, there's lots of things that you can either um, either escape from or avoid, uh, the other thing is attention. Um, we assume that attention is always positive, and many, many kids like negative comments for attention. Um, they will do all sorts of things so that they can, um, quote-unquote, in non-observable terms, push a, a teacher's buttons to get the teacher to 
Mm-hmm. Lord out all these negative co- stop it why are you doing this what and it's all these negative comments and that that's attention so i have seen quite a number of fbas that people have assumed that because they don't like negative attention that can't possibly be or negative comments i should say that can't possibly be the function of the child's behavior and so i want to kind of caution that negative comments is attention right and and this is an excellent point it's one that i think a lot of people have difficulty with because what's aversive to one person may not be aversive to another person i i always tell my students that they're continuing to sell sardines for a reason you know i hate them a lot of people i know hate them but somebody likes them so they're you know somewhere out there that's a reward for them and so what is aversive to me may not be aversive to you and similarly what i like you may not like absolutely well and you can have a situation and um rebecca and i talked about this um off camera but bringing into a situation like the playground child is playing with a toy mm-hmm. and a peer comes up and says i want to play student turns around and says whatever shut up go away i hate you get away from me and the peer list as the function so was it negative or, or or interaction with the peer or was it to keep their tangible toy which is a very good question not necessarily potentially easily answered unless we can observe it again and again and again and again under different scenarios that we might be able to answer that question of verbally um, saying negative comments to peers. Does it happen when it's with unpreferred items or unpreferred toys that, you know, then we might be able to exclude that it's not just the tangible, although it, it, it could help the situation quite a bit. And then of course, what gets makes it more fun and much more complicated is they can be multiply maintained. So it could be attention and the tangible or escape and something else. And Greg Hanley does, a, I mentioned him earlier, Greg Hanley does a wonderful job of talking about kids never escape. They never escape to a neutral environment. They always escape to something else. And so for the kid you send out into the hallway when they're misbehaving during math, what are they doing in the hallway? Because there's some activity, there's some person walking up and down the hallway, there's gonna be something about that environment that is a stimulus to that individual. That's a perfect comment, Ryan, because you're talking about sending the child out to the room and going to the office where lots of people are giving you attention about why are you in here? Why did you get into trouble? Why did you da 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 And there's just a ton of attention in the office. And so what are we escaping to? It's not just escape, but there's been many, many times that we've I've put into FBAs, escape to what? Escape to attention, escape to what is it that they're escaping to? And I think that's a, that's a perfect example because it's not just like in a vacuum that we're escaping and it's, right. you know, and that's and, the end of the story. And that's absolutely going to inform which intervention you use. Because if the individual is escaping to say the front office where they're talking with the secretary, well, then you can probably use some attention as a reward and just switch the contingencies on the kid and have a really wonderful intervention without a lot of effort. Absolutely. 
you change when they go to the office. They go when they've been acting well, and suddenly you have a kid who's doing all their math work. As a simplified <laughs> example. <laughs> so what are your opinions on power and control? Because I hear that all the time. This kid mm. wants to control the classroom, that kind of thing. Kristen, if you want to go, I, I'm happy to smile and nod. <laughs> um, to put it mildly, I'm not a big fan of power and control. Um, you're basically leaving off, what are they trying to control? Mm -hmm. You know, are they trying to control their, their toys around them, which is toys? It's not control, it's the toys. Mm -hmm. Are they trying to control the the attention that's around them. So you're leaving off the biggest mm -hmm. piece of it is what are they trying to control, not just control. Are they trying to control the attention? Are they trying to, to control um, how the pace of the instruction? I mean, there's lots of different things, but it has to, what are they escape or what are they controlling? What are they trying to control? And that's where it leads to back to seat um, power I'm kind of blank on that one. It's, it's well, very similar to. It is very control. similar. So here's, here's how I've kind of conceptualized that for myself. Control is different from the other functions in that it, it's trying to change the contingencies for other people. And so it's, it's less about the contingencies for themselves and trying to, con trying to change the consequences for other people and other people's behavior. And so if you think about it in that sense, Sure. I mean, I, I guess it, it could be a thing, but the research right now doesn't lead us to any really good interventions for that. When you can still flip it around and go back to some of the, the main four, the seat we mentioned about earlier, and they can lead you to really wonderful interventions, isn't that more effective? Isn't that more pragmatic? When we talk about the research, you said the research that shows, well, how, how do you do research on something like that? Because I've used that too. I've been like, oh, the research does not support power and control because I've read that the research, but I'm like, I don't really know. How do you do research on that? <laughs> that is a very complicated question. So FBA, just here's the, here's the short form. FBA comes from a process called functional analysis. Functional analysis is out of the applied behavior analysis literature. And it attempts to find, as you might guess, the functional cause of a behavior. And what it does is it sets up very tightly con clinic-controlled conditions in most cases and changes very small pieces of the, of the environment in each condition to evaluate that function, to, to evaluate that potential cause of the behavior. Um, there are some models for doing that in the schools. Uh, the Bloom model leaps to mind. And there's some trial-based FA stuff for um, for that, but it's a challenging process, and a lot and a lot of programs don't implement that part of the FBA into their programs. And so, uh, from my experience, anyway, a lot of school psychologists are not trained on that part of the process, and that's that's sort of that experimental part. Well, and and I guess I would just have to go back to um, what we learned in one of our first you know, classes and research is parsimony. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we can explain something in a simpler term in that they are trying to control, it's tangible or whatever it is. And that seems to explain what's going on. I don't understand why we need to go to a much more elevated status. And so if parsimony, if we can simplify it and that explains what's going on, I don't, we don't need to go a step further. 
I, so, I tell my, I'm sorry. I tell my students all the time, if you can solve the problem with a simple solution, why are you, why are you making it more complicated for yourself? I, I just got a comment um, from a viewer that says control issues, such a good thought. And I think I, there's a, maybe a little bit of delay when I'm, I'm getting the comments and messages, but I do want to um, say read this because he says it always makes me cringe when, when uh, people say that control is the function. Meanwhile, we're trying to control the child, which is so funny. But I, but I loved what you said, Kristen, about it's just a helpful framework to ask yourself, what is he trying to control? That's really helpful to me because there is something there and that's a great way to, to look at it for me. Now. Well, I think the viewer is brilliant. Yeah. When don't we try to control our environments? I mean, right. we control our environments all day, every day, and, or we have a very bad day because we didn't have the best control on our environments. Absolutely. And so, you know, we set ourselves up for the kinds of contingencies that we want. So the, the viewer's kind of um, perspective on that was just absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. When don't we try to control our environments? Right. Okay, we're, we're running out of time. Um, any final comments or thoughts? That was quick. I know. <laughs> I know, because it was so fun and awesome. So I, okay, I'm going to throw a comment out there, like FBA. BA behavioral analysis. You guys put like the badass in BA. You guys are awesome. <laughs> I could say that we're not at work, right? <laughs> I love it. So thank you for being so BA on our FBA episode part one. Um, <laughs> and we really appreciate you, um, you know, coming out here or you know coming on and and, um, and spending your time talking to us. It really helps us, and hopefully it helps school psychs out there across the country. Absolutely. And we're looking forward to part two. So anyone out there, if you're thinking about this and you have uh, questions and thoughts for what you'd like to continue the discussion topics on, please send them to us in any way, uh, in any comment forum. We can't wait to hear from you. Okay, so um, we're going to be wrapping for now. Uh, we'll be back live on October 2nd with a parent um, who's also a school psychologist. Um, a parent of a child with a disability. So um, look out for us then. And um, thank you, Kristen and Ryan, so much for your time and awesomeness. <laughs> Thanks so awesome. I'm now getting a t-shirt made. I'll buy one. Thank you guys so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody.